Today on Blue 58, the Packers made a move at the trade deadline, but it didn't bring any new talent to town. Instead, Rasul Douglas is leaving, heading for a new opportunity in Buffalo. Let's talk about it. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. Packers made a move at the trade deadline. It wasn't to bring anybody to the roster. I think this is basically what we expected right? What, I, I think there's a scenario where the Packers could have traded for somebody. It's really not that different from where they were last year. If you can get somebody on a, like a multi-year contract for a reasonable price, I think it makes sense, even if you're not going anywhere as a team, to try to trade for somebody. It really wasn't the case with anybody it looked like that was rumored to be available for this year. Any difference makers that were on the block are guys that are probably going to be free agents next spring anyway. And given where the Packers were and seemingly are with the shape of their team, with how things figure to go in the next year or so, you kind of have to shed some some older contracts if you have the opportunity to do that. And so the Packers do so. They trade Rasul Douglas and a fifth-round pick to the Bills for a third-round pick. Andy Herman of the Pack-A-Day podcast or Packer Report or of the many places he hangs out points out, that the Packers' fifth-round pick is probably going to be early. The Bills' third-round pick is probably going to be late. It's probably just a pickup of about 40 to 50 spots in the draft slots, uh, as Andy points out. So not like a huge needle-moving move, but they do now have a first-round pick, two seconds, and two-thirds. Overall, a pretty decent situation for the Packers to be in. You'd rather have the two-thirds than just the one-third, I guess, is what it what it comes down to. And if you're trying to do right by a player, it's better for Rasul Douglas to play meaningful football than to just languish in Green Bay. Uh, the thing that's been kind of running through my head all afternoon since this broke was the, the Fast and Furious meme, you know, Paul Walker going off down one road and Vin Diesel going off down another. You know, it, it's great for Rasul Douglas to get an opportunity to play meaningful football because he's been a really solid player ever since he arrived in, in Green Bay midway through the 2021 season. Some really memorable moments, especially in that 2021 year. The interception against the Cardinals, the interception return for a touchdown against the Rams and the Bears. Just being that leader in the secondary when the Packers needed a leader in the secondary, especially that 2021 season with uh, with Jair Alexander out for most of the year. They just needed a guy like Douglas to be there, and he was. And he was always good for a quote. Uh, he was the, one of the few guys that would not do athlete speak when he got the opportunity to talk. These past couple of years, but basically the past year and a half, all, all throughout last season and throughout this season so far, he's been the only guy willing to just sit there with a reporter and say, yeah, man, we suck right now. It's not good. I got to play better, but the defense has got to play better. The offense has got to play better. We've all got to play better because we're not good. It's not good football. And uh, just hearing him say stuff like that, it was refreshing. And it's it's a bummer to see him go, but I'm glad that he gets to, to play for a contender and that the Packers get something back in, in return. It wasn't just a situation where he asks for his release and the Packers grant it. You get a chance to make something work for both sides. The question then is what happens with the Packers now? By the time you hear hear this, it'll be at the earliest Wednesday, and Brian Gutekunst is scheduled to speak to reporters at some time during the day on Wednesday. It's 11.30 Central Time, 12.30 Eastern Time, and 
depending on where else you are in the world. You'll have to figure it out for yourself from there because it can't just lift all the time zones, either earlier or later than that. How about that? The question I would have for Brian Gutekunst, well, I have really two questions. The one that I would want to ask Gutekunst and the one that I just want to see play out here. First, for Brian Gutekunst, he's been pretty consistent throughout this whole process that this is not what he would consider a rebuild. I would ask him, phrasing the question like this, well, I would phrase the question like this. Here's what I would say. Rasul Douglas has been one of the leaders on this team so far this season. He's been one of your better players on defense, admittedly, maybe not where he was in past seasons by his own account, but one of your better players on defense and certainly a leader in that locker room. What does trading him now say about where you think this team is and how will that affect his departure? Or how was his, how will his departure affect that? I just want to hear what Brian Gutekunst says. What do you think that this trading a guy says about where you are as a team? Because if you do think you're close, if you do think that it's just a matter of, you know, playing slightly better or, you know, hitting a couple more plays or not having a couple penalties, then shoot, how is that going to be different for 2024? Yeah, his cap number is going to go up next year, but doesn't isn't he exactly the sort of guy you want to have around? A guy who's going to be a solid locker room presence, be reliable on the field, at least know where he's supposed to be, even if as his athleticism declines, you can't quite get there all the time. Just having an opportunity for him to be on the field for guidance purposes seems valuable to me. So if you think you're close, if you think you're not rebuilding, why trade a guy like that? And if you don't think you're rebuilding, what are you? How, how would you break that down? The question I have that I just want to see see play out is if something like this sends the Packers into a cultural tailspin. If this, it's it's hard to read this as something other than a white flag on the season, at least in part. If you think you really can scrape something together yet this year to look better, to play better, you got to keep Rasul Douglas. You've got to. But if you don't think you can. Of course you trade him. Of course, if you get the opportunity, you pretty much have to. Like we said up top, or earlier in this segment, Rasul Douglas isn't helping you right now if you're just that bad, and he's not going to help you next year if you still think you're going to be bad. You might as well get something for him while you can. So if you don't think you're rebuilding, why get rid of a guy like that? And what does it do to the rest of your team when you do? When you've said, we don't think we're rebuilding, all those nice things. Is that just happy talk? And how should the other guys on the team play in light of that? Obviously, you should take care of your business, but we're all human beings here. Motivations change. The realities of your situation change. And I guess it's interesting to see where this takes the fan base, too. We were talking about things like this and the trade and all the things the Packers could have done or should have done or this, that, and the other thing in our Discord server today. And uh, regular good question asker, not Rudy the good question asker, but good thoughtful contributor Gabe's MSU11 wrote this. This is a very intriguing time to be a Packers fan. This is the first time since Favre this team was just bad. We've had down years, but always the prospect of changing one thing and being in contention, a little more defense, a new play caller, etc. was all we needed. Now it's who knows. And I think that's a pretty good summary of where the Packers are right now. Yeah, it's been 30-ish years since the Packers were just out and out bad. The closest thing I think you look at is 
like 2005, where the Packers had to shed a bunch of contracts and really do a, a quick but short, relatively short reset as Ted Thompson took over as the team's GM. They were getting rid of guys like Darren Sharper, Mike Wall, uh, Mike Wall, and Marco Rivera. Probably a good move to get rid of Darren Sharper, given what we've learned about him since then. Um, but it was it was a time where they had to trim things down. But with Brett Favre there, you always believed that the Packers could turn things around, and they did. They got better in 2006, and in 2007 they were in the NFC Championship game, and we know where history has gone since then, that the rebuild that was started in 2005 carried the Packers well into the 2010s and beyond. But this seems a little bit more prolonged than that. This is more than just shedding a couple of contracts. This was a pretty hard teardown, and it looks like it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. How do we handle that? And how do we talk about that team? That's something I floated before the last Packers game and after the last Packers game is this is kind of almost preseason territory now. We're not talking about what the Packers are building. We're talking about who wants a job, who should be part of this team going forward. And how does getting rid of a veteran like Rasul Douglas change those fights and change the way that people fight? You, again, like to think that people are professional and will take care of business even if things aren't going well. But if there isn't something like someone like Rasul Douglas out there putting it on the line every play, giving you everything he's got every week, as a guy who's been in the league for a long, long time, does that affect how other people play? We won't know until we see this carry on for a while, but we're entering what's going to be a tougher stretch of the Packers' schedule here. Teams like the Lions and Chiefs are on the future or on the on the horizon in the next month or so, as well as a, a trip to Pittsburgh, which is not going to be a cakewalk, no matter who's playing quarterback there. And the Rams are are better this year than they were last year, even if they've got uncertainty at quarterback right now. It's hard to say, but we've been we have kind of come out of the easy portion of the Packers schedule. There aren't any more games against teams like the Raiders or the Broncos there. Yeah, we get the Bears and the Panthers, but generally speaking, I think that the games that the Packers have played so far are more winnable than the games that are ahead. How does a team like this, without some veteran leadership in the in the locker room, a more outspoken guy like Rasul Douglas, as much as I like guys like Aaron Jones and Kenny Clark and even Rashawn Gary, they're not the more loquacious type like Rasul Douglas was. How do they handle that? We don't know, and we're going to have to see it play out. Speaking of Rashawn Gary, bit of notable news for Gary so far this year. The exact number is not super important on the contract extension, but the new number, new money looks like four years, $96 million or so. Not a market resetting deal. That's, we'll talk about that in a second, but really first and foremost, I'm thrilled to have been wrong on Rashawn Gary dating back to the day he was drafted in 2019. He's put up consistent growth year over year. I would encourage you to go to thepowersweep.com, look at our resources tab at the top of the page, and look at the pass rush stats. The first thing you're going to see see on that page is pass rush win rate, a year-over-year exploration of every edge rusher and defensive lineman on the Packers roster right now. Gary's numbers are almost hard to get your head around how good he is now and how much he has improved since he started in the NFL. His first year, a pass rush win rate, according to Pro Football Focus, of just over 10%, which is pretty good. That's the line that we look at, basically, for for how successful the pass rush is. How many guys do you have over that 10% win rate? 
That's where Gary started. Now, though, his numbers have gone through the roof. He's over 20%, up near 25% in a pass rush, in his pass rush win rate. One in four pass rushes, he is beating the offensive lineman ahead of him, just outright. Regardless of when the ball comes out, regardless of, of where the ball is going on a given play, he's just getting into the backfield. That's a crazy amount of success. Yeah, it doesn't always translate into sacks for Gary. Those come when they come. But if you are consistently getting pressure on an opposing quarterback, you can be a successful player in the NFL, and Gary has been that. The raw numbers haven't always been there, sure, but he has been an incredible success story. He's one of your do-it-the-right-way guys, and he has always done it the right way. He comes in with question marks as a rookie. All he does is settle down and get to work, and he gets to work and earns more playing time in 2020, takes over as a major player in 2021, continues to grow in 2022, and then he gets the knee injury. It kind of goes back to square one and has to build himself back up as a player, and here we are in 2023 hitting the ground running after his ACL injury. Is he a perfect player? No, but there aren't any perfect players. And the important thing I think about Rashawn Gary is he shored up some of the weaker areas of his game and is consistently productive. Could he be better against the run? Yeah, but it's a passing league, and what you really are paying him to do is get after the passer, and he does that at an elite level. Now, I think this deal is kind of a win-win for both sides because Gary gets a big payday. The Packers don't have to put out another market-resetting deal, and I think this is going to look like even more of a bargain in the relatively near future because two pass rushers that were taken behind Gary are also up for contracts here in the relatively near future. Montez Sweat, who switched teams today, coming from Washington to Chicago, and Brian Burns toiling away in Carolina uh, at a very high rate of success, though you'd never really know it given what else goes on in Carolina, which is very little. Uh, but he's been a, a great pass rusher since he, since he came into the league too. There's a good chance that one or both of those guys are going to be at Gary's level or above in terms of salary. So instead of being the third or fourth highest paid to edge rusher in the league by next June or something, he could be the fifth or sixth highest paid edge rusher, which is pretty good bargain for the Packers. And Rashawn Gary still gets nearly $100 million in new money in his contract, which is a pretty nice place to be in too. So a win-win for the Packers. They get to retain a guy that they have drafted and developed, and the Packers get to have him for the early part of this ongoing rebuild, for sure. You can wonder about the timeline, but I think there is an aspect, and I wish we would have talked about this when we were, we were doing the tear it down discussion a couple episodes ago. I think there is an argument to be made about paying guys, even if it's not always the optimal decision, because as much as we try to optimize and do the analytically right thing all the time and do the things that help you generate the best odds of success, there are people involved here too. And treating everybody just like numbers on a spreadsheet is not always the best way to run a people-oriented business. I think there is an, an aspect of internal marketing. We talked about this with, with Aaron Jones, to extending guys that are maybe like 80 to 85% of an optimal decision versus a 100% optimal decision. So maybe it would have been better, whatever that looks like, to, to trade Rashawn Gary for a slew of draft picks if you could, but it also, I think, is good for your team in even like non-football ways to say, hey, 
we drafted this guy. We believed in him. We, when people said it was a reach, when, you know, that idiot who does the Blue 58 podcast said it may not be the best idea and we should have taken Montez Sweat or Brian Burns. We took Rashawn Gary and we developed him. He became first a good backup, then a quality starter, then a really good starter, and now an elite player at his position. We're rewarding that growth and we're betting on ourselves that we can do it again. And all the other 52 guys in the locker room or 68 guys in the locker room, if you include the practice squad guys, remember, this could happen to you. If you put in your time, if you continue to develop your craft, if you work with our coaches who are trying to get the most out of these guys, perhaps you could get a contract extension too. We take care of our own. If you're one of our own and you put in the time, we'll take care of you too. I, I think there is an aspect of that to contracts like this. Sometimes you got to do it. And Rashawn Carey's a really good guy to do it with because he's been a really good player. Well, I, I want to close today taking a couple listener questions. Uh, we got this question sir, from Sir Packer in our Discord server. We got it from a couple other sources too. But just to uh, to kind of recap or or maybe put a cap on our tear it down or who's to blame sort of discussion from last week, Sir Packer writes, when assessing guilt in Green Bay, I'm interested in what you'd put as far as the sample size for each potential culprit, as far as who's to blame for how the Packers have played this season. I don't know if I'd break it down by percentage, but maybe in order will help you sort it out a little bit. I think there's there's four groups or individuals that you want to talk about. Here's where I'm at. First and foremost, the general manager, because he chose to build the team in this way. And we talk about, you know, the youth of this team and all that. But a big reason that the Packers have to lean on so much youth is because the guys that Brian Gutekunst drafted from 2020 basically on are not playing at the level of a that a third and fourth year player should be at. So you're talking about your A.J. Dillons, your Josiah Aguaras, your Josh Myers. Uh, it would be great to have any contribution at all from Amari Rodgers, but he's functionally out of the NFL at this point, just kicking around on roster fringes. You see my point. The guys that he's taken at the top of the draft in 2020, 2021, we're even at the point where we're talking about that in 2022 with guys like Christian Watson, uh, they are not performing. So the guys that pass for quote-unquote veterans on your roster are not contributing in the way that they should. Next, I would put it on the coach. Uh, even if the guys aren't playing at the level that they could be, there are useful players on this roster. And I think it's clear to, I think all of us who have watched the Packers this year, that there are guys being used in weird ways. Luke Musgrave is the perfect example here. They are trying to make him into something that I think he isn't really. He needs to be your big slot tight end. And the Packers are playing him on like a a guy who's more in the vein of a Mercedes Lewis. They want him blocking. They want him on the end of the line. They want him to be the traditional wide tight end, and he just isn't that guy. And asking him to be that, especially as a rookie when we know how things go for young tight ends, is a they're miscasting him, and they're not doing him any favors in his, his development by asking him to work on things that he's probably never going to be that great at. Why try to shore up his weaknesses when you can just utilize his strengths. And he's got some really interesting strengths that we're just not seeing deployed in an interesting or useful way. Then you've got just the players as a whole. Now, maybe the players that the GM is a, has acquired aren't great. And maybe uh, the coaches could be doing a better job getting players ready. But it's just a lot of basic stuff that we see from the players as a whole 
uh, not being executed correctly. If you've been on Packers Twitter at all this week or whatever you call it now, X, or probably change names here in the near future, if you've been in the Elonverse any time recently, you've seen the play where the Packers, from early in this past week's game against the Vikings where they ran an RPO and the R wasn't there and the PO involved Jordan Love staring downfield looking at receivers not running routes at all. That is not really a coaching problem. It's the players doing the wrong thing. And while you can tell tell the players to do the right thing, they still got to do it. And beyond that, just basic stuff. How often do we see two wide receivers run to the same spot on a passing route? How often do we see Rasul Douglas screaming at other members of the secondary because they are just standing around kind of looking at each other, wondering what they're supposed to do? He knows where he's supposed to be. Do the rest of them? It, a lot of times it, it doesn't appear that they do. There are people just not doing their jobs, and it's not necessarily always the coach's fault. And then last, I think it would put Jordan Love. For as many as many things that I think he hasn't done well this season, it's really hard to put the bulk of the Packers' struggles on offense on him. I think there are things he can do better, but there are just so many things going wrong around him that I almost feel inclined to absolve him from blame at this point. I don't I don't know what he is. That scares me a little bit. Uh, but I think a big reason we don't know what he is is because nobody's giving us a really good opportunity to see what he is. Related to Jordan Love, Papa Rue, a regular Discord question asker, writes this, Jordan Love has a lot of caveats, contextual woes, and excuses, but what can we narrow down to being purely his fault and how the season is going so far? Two things, really. Uh, I think they're, they're mechanical things, accuracy and footwork. Accuracy is the real big one. Uh, completion percentage stuff isn't entirely his fault, I think, as we all understand. Uh, you, you can't catch the ball yourself, but um, contested catches aren't really his fault either. Sooner or later, Christian Watson has to actually play like a six foot five inch wide receiver in the end zone. But Love also does have some measurable problems consistently delivering a catchable ball. Sports Information Solution tracks this, they have a, a stat in their, their data hub, uh, which I, you could check out for yourself at sisdatahub.com. Um, but they, they have a, a stat that they track called catchable balls, and this is all human-verified stuff. This is things that they're doing just tracking balls on a at, at a film level. But among quarterbacks who have attempted at least 100 passes, he is the sixth worst in the NFL catching and in, in throwing a catchable ball. Only about four out of five Jordan Love passes are deemed catchable by the film watchers at Sports Information Solutions. League leaders are at or above 90%. You don't have to dig too far into that stat to see how that could really affect a game. Just one to two more on-target passes over the course of a game could add up to quite a bit. And over a course of the season, well, we're, what, seven games in now? That could be 15 to 20 catchable passes over the course of a year that are just not getting to receivers where they should. And then just footwork. I think um, whether it's JT O'Sullivan uh, or, or any of the other people who break down quarterback film on YouTube or elsewhere, you'll just about always see the footwork stuff come up with Jordan Love. He gets high on his feet a lot. He bounces a lot in the, in the pocket. His eyes and feet are not always in alignment. 
those are things that are on him. You can't blame those on receivers. You can't blame them on coaching because I, I know that you can't blame it on coaching because if there's anything that Tom Clements will tell you in the times when he does talk to the media or when you hear about his coaching philosophy is that footwork has to be good. And you know he's getting coaching on it because it's been a point of emphasis every time Tom Clements has said anything to the media. It's about Jordan. We got, we're on Jordan about his footwork. We're on Jordan about his footwork. At, at a certain point, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's not on the coach to like get down on his knees and put a guy's feet in the right spot. He's got to do it. At, at a, you can tell him where he's supposed to be. You can show him where he's supposed to be. You can't do it for him on the field, and I think that is that has been a consistent problem uh, for Love this year. In the grand scheme, though, as we said in the previous question, I think there are other people who are ahead of him. And you may notice that I left Joe Barry, to circle back to that question, out of that equation. And that's because I really put Joe Barry on Matt LaFleur. There really wasn't a good reason to hire Joe Barry back in 2021, there wasn't much of a reason to retain him after 2021, except for, you know, saying in the playoffs, it wasn't Joe Barry's fault that they lost that playoff game because you'd be accurate to say so. It really wasn't Joe Barry's fault. But after 2022, after you're trying to go in a different direction with the team, why not make a change? What is the case for keeping Joe Barry at this point? And if they keep him beyond this year, we really have to wonder what sort of blackmail information he might have on Matt LaFleur that causes him to keep giving Barry a job. But to be fair, a lot of times this year, Barry's defense has done their part of the job. Yeah, they've given up some ugly long drives. Yeah, they get gashed against the run, but they've done a pretty decent job in the most important area of, the, of their job, just stopping opposing offenses from scoring points. By and large, you should be able to get a win if your defense holds the opposing offense under 20. And the Packers' defense has done that a lot this year, and the offense has not been able to keep up. I don't think that's a good reason to keep Joe Barry. Please don't keep Joe Barry just because his defense has been slowing down pretty mediocre offenses to this point in the NFL season. We'll finish with this question. TK asks in our Discord server, it seems like the Packers' draft philosophy has been you can't teach insert physical speed, physical speed attribute here, but it seems like they aren't moving beyond their draft profile. Do you think it's a coaching issue or are we drafting guys that lack the ability to grow their game? And if it's the latter, is there a way to evaluate for that? I think you're correct in your assessment, basically. The Packers have had a pronounced fixation on athleticism over the past, well, basically since Brian Gutekunst took over and even even prior that, prior to that under Ted Thompson to an extent. The Packers have drafted a bunch of great athletes, but they aren't moving much beyond that either. And I think there's reason to wonder if that's even that great of a strategy anymore, or if that can't be your only strategy anymore. Kent Lee Platt, the guy behind Relative Athletic Score, who we interviewed this spring, a great interview, by the way, and he's got some good thoughts and good stuff coming out as far as Relative Athletic Score goes. But he dropped a nugget a little while back, basically saying, we've reached the point in the NFL where there's pretty much nobody who matters in the league who isn't an eight-plus RAS guy. Eight is the, the threshold for athlete athleticism in Kent's metric here. So basically, anybody who matters is an elite athlete already, and teams are basically made up almost entirely of elite athletes at this point. So scouting based on athleticism, 
based on a relative athletic score, isn't really an edge anymore as it's more of like a yes, no sort of thing. Should we consider this guy? Shouldn't we consider this guy? And then you go back and look at the the other guys you missed who may not hit that athlete athleticism threshold. Everybody, though, is looking for basically purely elite athletes now, whether they use relative athletic scores, some proprietary metrics, Spark from Nike. I know the Seahawks were using that a while back. But it's not a differentiator anymore. Basically, you should only be looking at those guys because that's all anybody is looking for. And if you want to try to go back and find some gems, you can. But the real difference makers in this increasingly athleticism-driven league are the guys at that level. I think coaching... So, so to the question here, is this a coaching issue or is this an issue of drafting guys who lack the ability to grow their game? Unfortunately, I think it's a little bit of both. So that's not very a very interesting answer. But I think some of the guys the Packers have taken are red flags for this method from the start. Because it's good to draft elite athletes. I think it's a little bit problematic to draft guys who pop only as athletes. So if you have guys who are basically just athletes on their scouting report, that's a bit of a question mark for me. So I would put, just as a for instance, Eric Stokes and Christian Watson in that camp. They won in college because they were elite athletes. They they did what they could do at the college level because they were just more athletic than everybody else. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a criticism. It does, I think, limit who you can be or, or it, it's, it gives you a lower floor in the NFL, put it that way. Because once you start going up against other elite athletes, then your skill issues start showing up. And I think guys like that are hard to evaluate because they, they're overwhelming athletes and it's easy to get by as that kind of player in college football. If you're Christian Watson, especially playing at the level of competition he did in college, it's really easy to just do a good job because you're a great athlete. And there's really no reason to improve on your game or work on the ultra-technical aspects of being a wide receiver if you don't have to. And we've seen guys like that at the NFL level. I mean, I don't think anybody would really argue that Randy Moss or Calvin Johnson or Terrell Owens were like technically savvy receivers. Sure, they all improved and grew in those ways over the course of their NFL careers. But what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of those guys? Randy Moss was faster and and could jump higher than just about anybody. Calvin Johnson, well, his nickname was Megatron because he looked like a giant invincible robot on the field. And Terrell Owens, somewhere between the two. I mean, he's kind of in that Megatron sort of camp. I mean, you look at, you, you look for pictures of Terrell Owens, like six out of 10 of them, he's got his shirt off. And why wouldn't he? If I looked like Terrell Owens, I don't think I would own a shirt. But he was an overwhelming athlete. So was Calvin Johnson. So was Randy Moss. And you can get by being that kind of guy if you are a certain kind of athlete. But that's a hard guy to scout in college. You're counting on guys like that to get coached up to an extent in the NFL, but in some ways you're also starting from zero because they've never really had to be football players. All they had to be was athletes. So some guys are starting from a better foundation in addition to being great athletes, and this is where I think you can blame coaching. We talked about Luke Musgrave already in this episode as kind of falling into this camp. Musgrave is an elite athlete. He's a, a rare specimen at the tight end position. 
but he also has a really specific skill set. And the Packers are trying to make him into something that doesn't necessarily align with that skill set. So he starts from that athleticism foundation. He starts as a guy who's had success doing one thing in college. The Packers need to help him grow in those areas um, and and not try to add to his weaknesses. This is, I think, a, a good kind of teaching point for football and for life. I think too often we we get fixated on shoring up weaknesses instead of just building on strengths. Because if you define yourself by your weaknesses, yeah, that's that's true. You you are weak in those areas, but you often end up ignoring spending times on st- spending time on things that could make you truly special. And Musgrave does have some special attributes in terms of what he does well. But instead of doing that, the Packers are trying to make him better at things that he doesn't do well already. And and what's more important for the Packers? Musgrave moving from being a a D-graded blocker to a C-plus blocker, or Musgrave going from being a B-plus receiver to an A receiver? It's the second one. And being an overwhelming athlete, being a great athlete who is also good at the more technical aspects of the thing that allow him to use that skill set— it's going to be better for your team long-term. So how do you find the guys that can actually grow? That's kind of the gist of this question. How do you scout for that second part, the guy that the guys that can grow? I think our approach to the draft does a pretty good job of getting at this because you, you divide guys into three tiers, guys who are athletic and productive, guys who are just athletic, and then guys who are just, uh, just productive. Your productive athletes are always going to be your best chance of success because they've been productive with their athleticism, and they they have an opportunity to grow their skills. Then you take guys that are just athletes because you figure if you're going to start from scratch, if you're going to start growing somebody as a player, you might as well start with a guy who's got an athletic advantage already. And then you go back and look at the guys that are that have just succeeded in college and try to figure out if they have a skill set that you can use. Hopefully, if you're scouting professionally, you get a better way of doing it than just that. But I think that's basically the rubric for it. You're looking for guys that were good producers at the college level or guys that just have rare attributes that hopefully you can mold into something and then fill it in with the rest of it from there. I'm not saying this is easy. There are a lot of challenges that come with this, and that's why these guys get paid a lot of money and why it's so stressful and why they're working 18, 19-hour days during draft season. But um, there is a way to do it, and if you can do it well, you're going to have a long, long NFL career and hopefully win a couple Super Bowls for your troubles. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.